Welcome to Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is part two of a seven-part series on homosexuality. Each part in this series deals with very different issues, ranging from theology to science to philosophy to psychology to legal issues. I recommend checking out the whole series. We are in a time and culture where the church needs clarity on this issue, and my goal is to help provide that clarity. So let's get started on part two of our series on homosexuality, where we deal with the New Testament teaching on the topic. Today is the New Testament, though. We're going to discuss the New Testament and the scriptures in the New Testament regarding homosexuality. Last week, we talked about the Old Testament, and that, of course, is available on YouTube. And... Um, <clears throat> We're going to go through the pro-gay theology that's recently become popular. We're going to hear it out, try to understand it accurately, represent it correctly, and then analyze it carefully because it does fall short. It turns out the pro-gay theology that's being promoted in churches actually nowadays, in some anyways, is not historically accurate. It's not grammatically accurate to the text. It's not philosophically sound, the reasoning leaps that are made. And, it, and the bottom line is it's not biblical. It's just not, it's not what the Bible teaches. And, um, and if those things are true, then it's rational that they should stop saying it. They should stop preaching it. If what you're preaching is false, you should stop preaching it. This makes sense. So I'm going to try to make a case for that. Last time we looked at the Old Testament, we looked at Genesis 19. We looked at Jude's commentary on that and determined that the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is actually valid as a representation of God's opinion of this type of behavior based on scripture. Um, looked at Leviticus 18 and 20 in context, namely that God judges Gentiles by these standards and that homosexual behavior is wrong even for Gentile nations. It's not just a, in the law of Israel it says, it's actually bigger than that according to the Old Testament. But today we're going to go to Romans 1. That's our first passage, so you might want to flip there. Romans 1 verses 26 and 27. This passage is actually what Matthew Vines, he's the pro-gay theology sort of spearhead we're kind of using as our example of their position. He admits that the most powerful passage against homosexual behavior is not in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. It's actually this Romans 1 passage. So we're going to uh, read it, and then we're going to listen to his arguments about it, and then we'll, then we'll respond. So in Romans 1.26, it says, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Now, the traditional view is just that this represents uh, a clear prohibition against any form of homosexuality. Now, he rejects, Matthew Vines and, and most pro-gay, the revisionist groups, they'll reject this. And they do it initially because, and this is his reason, because this means God desires gay people to be forced to be alone forever. So even though on the face of it, it seems to say that homosexuality is wrong, the initial rejection is this. You're saying that gay people have to be alone forever, and that's just wrong, so that can't be what it means. Now, I think if, with, with just some careful reasoning, you can see we're not saying that. And the Bible's not saying that either. It says there's, there's this physical act that two men and two women are not supposed to do does not make, mean people have to be alone forever. It's not a, one does not equal the other. So it's, it's kind of like when you're arguing with your kid, and they turn to you and say, you hate me. And it's not really a choice of either you go to the party or I hate you. Those aren't the only options here. And that's kind of the case here. It's, that's, that's sort of a, an uncharitable representation of that view. But this is important because this fuels their theology. Their, their thought about loneliness being inherently wrong is why they will then go to great lengths to reinterpret the scriptures. But yet, the Bible doesn't say it's evil for man to be unmarried. It says it was not good for Adam to be alone. And like we talked about last week, that aloneness meant what? He was the only human on earth. That's alone. That's not good. But actually, the New Testament speaks very highly of a single lifestyle. In fact, saying that it's better for the kingdom of God that you stay single than it is if you get married in 1 Corinthians 7. So this is... Um, 
sort of a, a red herring that's being drugged through the, the argument here. This, it's not a, alone, you know, you have to be single forever, which means alone, and that's evil. I mean, what an insult to single people to say this. I mean, there are even single people I know who would like to be married, but simply it just hasn't worked out. They haven't found that person. And so they're single, and as they're getting older, they're just coming to say, you know what, I'm just happy being single, this is fine. But I would not call that a great evil. I would just say that's actually better for the kingdom of God, that they have that. That's a great opportunity for them to serve the Lord more with their life. So it's, it's actually a, not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But being alone on a desert island with no humans at all, that's bad. <laughs> that's bad. But we're, of course, not suggesting that. So the pro-gay theology here um, will make a really big deal about the context of Romans 1, that before it says this about men and women, it mentions idolatry. And they will say, um, Matthew Vine will speak as if, because of that, this passage only applies to idolaters. That, that's kind of on the face of it, not right. Idolatry isn't the chief sin in the passage. Rejecting God and rejecting God's truth is the chief sin in Romans 1. And the purpose of Romans 1 through 3 is to say that the whole world is guilty before God, not just that idolaters are guilty. 1 through 3 is to say the whole world. He targets Gentiles and then he targets Jews and says, see, you're all guilty before God. Whether or not they're specifically to idolatry is not the main thing. They've fallen into one or another or, or multiple of these sins. That's the issue, which is why it goes on to say all the world is guilty before God. So it's not specifically about idolatry. And it would be unreasonable to think. Romans 1 says idolaters, you can't have you know, same-sex behavior. But Christians, you can. That's obviously not the teaching of the passage. So focusing on the idolatry thing is just kind of beside the point. Let me read to you, after he gets that idea of idolatry in, in mind, he says this. <clears throat> it's kind of peculiar, so listen carefully. I'm going to quote Matthew Vines now. Both the men and the women started with heterosexuality. I think we'd agree there. They were naturally disposed to it, just as they were naturally disposed to the knowledge of God. But they rejected their original natural inclinations for those that were unnatural. For them, same-sex behavior. Paul's argument about idolatry requires that there be an exchange. The reason, set, the reason, he says, that the idolaters are at fault is because they first knew God, but then they turned away from God and exchanged him for idols. Paul's reference to same-sex behavior is intended to illustrate this larger sin of idolatry. And that's not exactly accurate, but, uh, but in order for this analogy, and he says analogy, he's referring to Romans 26 one twenty six and 27. For this analogy to have any force, in order for it to make sense within this argument, the people he's describing must naturally begin with heterosexual relations and then abandon them. And that's exactly how he describes it. And so far, we're not disagreeing too much, but I want to real quick pause before I read more of what he says and just say, Paul is not making an analogy. There's no like or as or similitude going on here. He's actually just describing the depravity of man. So when he says men exchange the natural use for what's against nature, he says this sort of thing. It's not an analogy. That's just grammatically, linguistically fabricated. It's not there. I mean, the passage is before you. You can read it carefully and see. That's a mishandling of, that t- of the text. Um, it's just a description of the guilt of mankind. <clears throat> then he says this. But that is not what we are talking about. In the pro-gay theology, we're not talking about heterosexuals giving up heterosexual desires. So now, here's the twist. Gay people have a natural, permanent orientation towards those of the same sex. It is not something that they choose, and it's not something that they can change. They are abandoning or rejecting... They aren't, excuse me. They are not abandoning or rejecting heterosexuality. That's never an option for them to begin with. And if applied to gay people, Paul's argument here should actually work in the other direction. If the point of this passage is to rebuke those who have spurned their true nature, be it religious when it comes to idolatry or sexual, then just as those who are naturally heterosexual should not be with those of the same sex, so too those who have a natural orientation toward the same sex should not be with those of the opposite sex. For them, that would be exchanging the natural for the unnatural. In just the same way, we have different natures when it comes to sexual orientation. So uh, you may have got a little bit lost in the wording there. It's a little bit confusing, but it's also because he's, he's actually coming up with a novel concept, not novel to him, but novel to the scriptures. So basically, gay people are naturally gay. Therefore, Paul was only condemning heterosexuals from experimenting with homosexuality. But Paul would actually want gay people to be with other gay people, be with the same sex. 
and that they're supposed to follow their nature. And by nature, it means what they're naturally, what they're um, born into and inclined to. My initial response to this would just be to read the passage again. Because this is, this is a, a really um, interesting thing. And, and probably it's not very convincing to most of you, unless you're already convinced, in which case it's easier to, to you know, give you something to hang on to for your, for your thoughts. But let me read as he continues to go on defending this argument. He goes, but is this just a clever argument that has no grounding in the historical context of Paul's world and therefore yields an interpretation that could not be what he originally intended? After all, the concept of sexual orientation is very recent. It was only developed within the past century, and it has only come to be widely understood within the past few decades. So how, so, um, how, we can, or how can we take our modern categories and understandings and use them to interpret a text that is so far removed from them? But that level of removal, he answers the question, is precisely the point. In the ancient world, homosexuality was widely considered not to be a different sexual orientation or something inherent in a small minority of people, but an excess of lust or passion that anyone could be prone to if they let themselves go too much. Just a couple of quotes to illustrate this. So he's now making a case that in ancient Rome, homosexuality was viewed in a very peculiar way. And if you view that with that peculiarity and you look at Romans one, then you will see his point. You'll be like, see, he wants same-sex people to be with same-sex people. He wants heterosexuals to be with other heterosexuals. And that's the real argument here. Um, it's, it's a rather weak argument when you really get into it. But let's hear it out. He now quotes, just a couple of quotes to illustrate this. A well-known first-century Greek philosopher named Dio Chrysostom wrote the following. Or it's Dio probably, but the man whose appetite is insatiate in such things, referring to heterosexual relations, so the guy who can't get enough, will have contempt for the easy conquest and scorn for a woman's love as a thing too readily given and will turn his assault against the male quarters, believing that in them he will find a kind of pleasure difficult or hard to procure. Then he quotes another guy. He says, a fourth century Christian writer said of, of same-sex behavior, you will see that all such desire stems from a greed which will not remain within its usual bounds. The abandonment of heterosexual relations for same-sex lust was, that was the quote, by the way, just that one sentence. Um, the point is, he's saying here, um, ancient Romans, they, they were all convinced, the vast majority convinced that homosexuality was not an orientation they thought it was just a heterosexual who just was too greedy and too lusty. And so then they started to, it started to like overflow and they began lusting after the same sex. That's the view he's trying to, to say. And that that qualifies for saying, see Romans 1, it's saying gay people be gay, straight people be straight. So let's, uh, let's read on. Uh, the abandonment of heterosexual relations, Matthew Vines here speaking, for same-sex lust was frequently compared to gluttony and eating or drinking. Sexuality was seen as a spectrum, with opposite-sex relations being the product of a moderate level of desire, and same-sex relations the product of an excessive amount of desire. Personal orientation had nothing to do with it. But within this framework, as I said, same-sex relations were associated with the height of excess and lust, and that is why Paul invokes them in Romans 1. His purpose is to show that idolaters were given over to unbridled passion and to depict a scene of sexual chaos and excess that illustrates that. And that is completely consistent with how same-sex relations were most commonly described at the time. But the only reason that a reference to same-sex behavior helps Paul illustrate general sexual chaos, and I'm almost done here, <laughs> is because the people he is describing first began with opposite sex relations and then, in a burst of lust, abandoned them, exchanged them for something else, which would be same-sex attractions. So the only thing Paul rejects in Romans 1, in the passage we read, is heterosexuals acting like homosexuals, according to this new pro-gay theology. Now... That's, a, that's a, a brain full of stuff. And it's a little bit confusing. And in complete honesty, it's, it's, it's a term philosophers use called ad hoc. It's a, it's, it just means for this, ad hoc, for this. And the term means is used when someone makes up an argument just 
to create their, their, their presupposed end. So you might say, Mike, why should I give you $5? And I'll be like, well, everybody gives me $5. And you're like, Mike, I don't think that's true. I think you just made that up so that I would give you $5. That's an ad hoc argument. And this comes off as an ad hoc argument. It's this really convoluted sort of thing where you, when you read Romans 1, what you really should be reading is a text where Paul's now saying, hey, if you're attracted to same-sex people, good. Make sure to stay that way. Instead of saying what he seems to be saying, which is that all same-sex behavior is wrong. This is actually based on a central, central argument in most pro-gay th- theology, as well as people who aren't even um, really all that committed, <laughs> committed to it. There's just this concept of orientation. Basically, the central argument goes like this. Back in the day, people only knew about bad homosexual behavior, and that's all Paul's condemning. Modern ideas of homosexual orientation, quote-unquote born that way, were unknown, and committed gay relationships were unknown. So this is why none of the verses in the Bible apply to, say, two same-sex loving people having a committed long-term relationship, because nobody knew about that back then, and we've just discovered it now, and, and so it's irrelevant. Matthew Vines actually says this, I'll quote him, no same-sex relationships were marked by long-term commitment and love. Speaking of ancient Rome, speaking of the time of Christ, the time of the apostles. There was no such thing. And this is how the logic will go. You'll hear these arguments if you're engaged in this. They'll say, there's a lot of bad examples of homosexual behavior in the ancient world, and there are. And they can give examples of men raping boys and all kinds of horrible stuff, things you could actually give examples of today as well. And they'll say, this is the kind of stuff, a priest and this and that, and a lot of like stuff that just turns your stomach, right? Then they'll follow it with quotes and descriptions of the worst kind of behavior they can find. And then the conclusion is this. Therefore, when the Bible condemns same-sex behavior, it's only condemning those bad actions. It's not condemning same-sex love, what they would call love. There's several problems with this, so I'm not going to give them to you in order. The first problem with it is this. The Bible does not single out those types of behaviors. The Bible condemns all homosexual acts without any qualifications. There's no like details given. It's just when men do with men what they should do with women, that's evil. That's, that's the prospect of Scripture, both in Leviticus 18 and 20. Also in Romans 1, here in this passage, without any qualification, if Paul wanted us to think there was an exception to the rule, he didn't give us any wiggle room to find that in the passage. So the first problem is this. The Bible doesn't single out those behaviors. That's not consistent with what the scripture says. The second problem is the Bible never gives exceptions to the prohibitions against same-sex behavior. All it takes is one verse in our entire Bible saying, unless they get married or unless they stay together till death. There isn't a single verse in the Bible to say, uh, in, in, the, in the scriptures that talk about sexual immorality, it never says, unless they love each other. That's never given as an excuse. It's like, adultery is wrong, unless they really love each other, in which case it's okay. That's not what the scripture teaches. So that's the second problem with it. It doesn't say same-sex behavior is bad unless. There's never a qualification given. And the third problem is this, and this is um, more to the point, I think. Committed same-sex relationships were not unknown in the ancient Roman world. This is just a factual error. It's just not true about ancient Rome. It's not true about Paul. It's not true about the Bible. In Plato's Symposium, which is about 375 BC, he describes, he has a character describing how same-sex orientation came about and says that Zeus had split people into three different forms of humanity, male, female, and mixed, where it would be um, so that then they're all seeking out their other half. And males would seek out their other half. Females would seek out their other half, which would be opposite sex. And then this mixed group would seek out a same-sex partner as the person that they're like their soulmate. That's Plato's Symposium. We're talking 375 years before Christ. Emperor Nero actually, and he was contemporary of Paul, he actually married two men. Emperor Nero. One of them, he saw and actually uh, forcibly, I believe, had him castrated because he said he looked like his former wife. So he had the, the man castrated and then uh, ha, you know, had him play the female role in this relationship. And another one where Emperor Nero got married and he played the, the, fem, the female role in the wedding. And um, yeah, the, the emperors of Rome were, were, they did a lot of weird stuff. 
a lot of weird stuff. But <clears throat> in the past, maybe 30 years ago or so, there was a little bit more support for this position that ancient Rome didn't know about homosexual lifestyles and homosexual same-sex couples, loving homosexual relationships, that kind of thing. But but not anymore because there's just been a lot of research and a lot of resources to come about. There's a book called the new Testament on sexuality by a guy named William Loader. And on page 84, he says this, um, speaking of how, uh, the, in the past they didn't, they didn't have this information, but now since about the eighties and nineties, they've got more information about ancient Rome because archeology span and discovery of different, different texts and things like this. He says, subsequent research, including Dover's revised edition has shown, however, that not all pederastic relations were experienced as exploitive and that other forms of same sex relations were known both in the classical Greek period and in the Hellenistic area, including lifelong same-sex relations, that these were known. Thomas K. Hubbard, who is a non-Christian classics professor, he's the editor um, who brought together a whole bunch of ancient writings on homosexuality. He didn't comment on them so much as he just put them all in one giant group. Here's what ancient sources say about homosexuality. It's a 558-page book that has been translated into English. You can get it if you'd like some really boring and strange reading. It's called Homosexuality in Greece and Rome, a source book of basic documents. Just a source book to be quoted. It's available, like I said, in English. It shows that every kind of homosexual relationship we see today, every kind, was also existent in ancient Rome. There's nothing new. Lesbianism, sex parties, lifelong same-sex partners, and even same-sex marriages. Hubbard also describes early imperial Rome in this way. Here's a quote from him. The coincidence of such severity on the part of moralistic writers with the flagrant and open display of every form of homosexual behavior by Nero and other practitioners indicates a culture in which attitude about this issue increasingly defined one's ideological and moral positions, kind of like today. In other words, homosexuality in this era, ancient Rome, may have ceased to be merely another practice of personal pleasure and began to be viewed as an essential and central category of personal identity, exclusive of and antithetical to heterosexual orientation. This is why there's actually a lot of even um, gay historians who are gay activists in the gay community who will agree that this is the case. So an example is uh, Lewis Crompton, who's a gay man and a pioneer in queer studies. He has a massive book called Homosexuality and Civilization. And he says this. Some interpreters seeking to mitigate Paul's harshness have read the passage in Romans 1 as condemning not homosexuals generally, but only heterosexual men and women who experimented with homosexuality. That's the exact. He's speaking to the exact pro-gay theology we're dealing with today. According to this interpretation, Paul's words were not directed at bona fide homosexuals or people who were genuinely homosexual in committed relationships, but such a reading, however well-intentioned, seems strained and unhistorical. Nowhere does Paul or any other Jewish writer of this period imply the least acceptance of same-sex relations under any circumstances. The idea that homosexuals might be redeemed by mutual devotion would have been wholly foreign to Paul or any Jew of early Christianity. And this, of course, is someone coming from a camp who's not the conservative Christian view. In fact, he's on the other side of things. He's just being honest about the historical nature of ancient Rome. N.T. Wright said this, as a classicist, which he studies the classics, that's what it means, right? Not, he's just classy, he may, which he may be, I don't know. I have to say that when I read Plato's Symposium, or when I read the accounts from the early Roman Empire of the practice of homosexuality, then it seems to me they knew just as much about it as we do. In particular, a point which is often missed, they knew a great deal about what people today would regard as longer-term reasonably stable relations between two people of the same gender. This is not a modern invention. It is already there in Plato. The idea that in Paul's day, it was always a matter of exploitation of younger men by older men or whatever. Of course, there was plenty of that then as there is today, but it was by no means the only thing. They knew about the whole range of options there. 
So really there's a consistent view that, the, that historically you can't, you can't even begin the argument in Romans 1 the way they do because it's just not historically true. Paul, it cannot be assumed that Paul had no clue about the ideas of orientation. Maybe not, maybe not perfectly exactly like they're going to say DNA and genetics because those fields had not been introduced. But they did have ideas of orientation that parallel them but with other explanations for them. So um, at this point, then, there'll be a lot of discussion in Romans 1 about the words natural and unnatural. As we kind of move off of that topic, I, th- I think that argument's been thoroughly you know, debunked. But the words natural and unnatural, and let me read to you what Matthew Vine says. His main point here is this. The people Paul is describing here first began with opposite sex relations, and then in a burst of lust, abandoned them and exchanged them for something else. So no joke, this is, this is truly what he means. That by natural, it means if you're naturally homosexual, you should stay that way. And if you're naturally heterosexual, you should stay that way. That's his view of the word natural. This idea that, that we actually get from Plato's Symposium even, right, over 300 years earlier. But it's the idea that there's three kinds of people. There's, there's, there's women. I, maybe, yeah, I could say there's four kinds of people, I guess. There's women attracted to men. Men attracted to women. Men attracted to men and women attracted to women. And these are the four kinds of people. And depending on which kind you are, that's who you should, that's who you should be. Now, that's fine if, you have an, if, you have, if you're making your own moral code in life, but not if you're coming from a biblical perspective. That's completely opposed to what Scripture says. It's just sort of fabricating a third category of people that never existed. And um, according to the biblical opinion, there's only two, the two categories given. To Matthew Vine, there is this third one. Now, what defense does he give to prove that there is a third category of people who are born gay and should, that means they're naturally gay and should behave gay in their lifestyle and their actions? What defense does he give to support this view? None. He doesn't give a single reason or any support of any kind whatsoever. He just assumes it's true. And this is so often the case. We'll actually deal with this in the next two weeks. We'll talk about evidence about the whole idea of being born that way and then what the implications are and all that. But it's just an assumption that it's true. What's obviously true about being born is the gender somebody comes with, the, the, the design of the body. That's what's obviously true. Uh, but this other thing is not obviously true. This, again, is just like an ad hoc thing. And to, to sort of debunk that idea, I just want to read the passage again. Let's look at Romans 1 one more time. Verses 26 and 27. Is there a third category here? For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty due of their error, which was due. There's no qualifier. There's only two categories. It doesn't say that they exchanged, check this out, natural desires. It actually says they exchanged the natural use of the woman. So they did not exchange natural desires for women, but the proper use of a woman, which of course would be in a, in a long-term marriage commitment. That's the proper use of, of a man and woman. It's not okay to have fornication in any other setting. It, there's just sex and marriage. That's what scripture says. So that's the natural use. So to exchange the natural use, this would even include a blanket um, rejection of the idea of same-sex marriage, even in the scripture here. Paul is not saying the desire, but the use is what was natural. And so the desires are seen as going against the use. So I have desires against the physical makeup of my design. This seems to very much describe someone who's, whether they're born or not, but someone who has uh, same-sex attraction issues. That's what it describes. Paul is clearly ruling out any third category. Now I want to talk about another pro-gay view. Sorry, it gets a little complicated in Romans 1, I think, because it's so obvious. So then in order to fight it, they have to some very nuanced and sort of complicated attacks. Another pro-gay view says that it's really only about harmful or dominant or abusive relationships. And one of the responses we can have to this is, yes, in the ancient Rome, there was a lot of dominant, but like I said, there was other relationships known as well. But also this, there aren't really known any cases of lesbian relationships that were like that. These dominant and abusive and harmful lesbian relationships. And Paul, in this, in this passage, says that women did this too. And he actually comes against the idea of lesbianism as well in this passage. 
It's the only passage that clearly, specifically calls out that issue. And if we're going to say that, you know, this is about men and, and men predators, male predators, basically, that you just don't, you just don't find this cross-gender. It's not the case. And so that doesn't, that doesn't really hold up. Also, in verse 27 of Romans 1, it says that the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another. So this is a mutual Mutual agreement. They both are lusting after each other. So it's not about a rape type thing or child abuse or something like that. Now, let me read another argument that um, Matthew Vines has against our interpretation of Romans here. He says, and surely it is significant that Paul here speaks only of lustful, casual behavior. He says nothing about people the people in question falling in love, making a lifelong commitment to one another, or starting a family together. Now, earlier, he argued that Romans 1 was saying, be true to your own sexual orientation. But now, it's different. Now, the argument's more like, yeah, it's against same-sex relations, but only casual ones. So, so he's, he's not even being consistent. There's no actual consistent interpretation of Romans 1. It's just anything I can throw out there that will, that will detract from the, uh, the obvious meaning of the passage. Is it true, though, that Paul knew nothing about committed, long-term, same-sex relationships? We've already covered that. I've given you several quotes from people smarter than me who study this stuff a lot more than I have, and even from pro-gay professors in those same fields who agreed. This was known. So then the issue of, does love then make it okay? Does love make sin okay? Does No. In fact, the Bible does not even say that two people, I'm just going to be clear here, that two people have to love one another in order to sleep together. They have to be married. And there's a difference that I think, strictly speaking, even if there was a somewhat of an unloving marriage, it's still appropriate for that couple to be together in bed. And that love doesn't, the, the presence of love doesn't make it okay. The absence of love doesn't then make it not okay. Not that that would be a healthy relationship to be in. But just to be clear, the way the scripture treats it, it's not a love issue. It's a, it's a design issue and it's a lust, uh, not lust versus love. It's just simply, this is not God's plan and therefore... Now, obviously, there's lust when you do something that you desired to do it. If it was you did it willingly, so that's there, but that's not the main issue. It's the design issue. But we'll get more on the, the issue of love later on. So another point he makes about the idea of natural versus unnatural gets a little bit hairy. Uh, but let me, let me explain it to you. He will assert that the term natural, the Greek word phusis here in Romans 1, and the unnatural, the, the, the antithesis of that, only refers to custom. And that what he's saying is women should not, are not customarily with women and men are not customarily with men. And this is just against custom. And so he's going to say then that um, Greek and Roman culture, their custom was that men were supposed to have the active role and women the passive role in the bedroom relationship. And so that the problem with this now, as he continues to argue, kind of contradicting himself earlier, the problem now is men with men, well, one of them is in the passive role. And that guy's the guy that's really got, he's doing the wrong thing. That's sort of from a, from a Roman perspective. So he goes on to say, Matthew Vine says, so the term natu- nature here refers to social custom and not to the biological order. And it's a culturally specific term. Now, his point then is it's irrelevant. This, this prohibition against same-sex behavior is just like, hey, Romans, you know how you feel this? I'm just making an analogy about it now. So at first... I mean, I have a third and contradicting interpretation from the first two. First, it was gay men should stay gay and straight men should stay straight. Then it was, um, no, no, it was just a prohibition against casual relationships and they should just have committed relationships. Now, it just means the Romans thought that men should be active and women passive and um, having two people of the same sex in bed would mess that up. But it's just against custom, so it doesn't bind on us today. This is what I, what I call kitchen sink theology. It's like, I'm just throwing everything I can in there. Even if I'm contradicting my own perspective, as long as I get to my, my, my end, which is to devalue this passage as it applies to our lives so I can do what I want to do. This is horrible theology. This is the worst, this is the worst possible way to handle the scriptures. And it's reckless. And to teach it to other people is, is uh, I think to bring judgment on your own soul. We need to rightly handle the word of God 
and this is so reckless, so reckless. It's not even possible that everything he said is true. One of those three things could potentially be true, but the other two would be contradicted, which means by nature he must be saying some things that are not true here and seems that either he should know it and and shouldn't be teaching because he doesn't know it or he's continuing to teach even though he does know it, one or the other. So it's pretty heavy. But let's get into this issue. Um, The word phusis doesn't mean custom or does it mean nature as in natural. You might think of what English word we might get from phusis. It's like physical and that's typically how the word is used. In fact, phusis is used 14 times in the New Testament. And there is not one passage where it clearly is talking about custom. It appears in every single passage to be talking about nature, what is natural, what is physical, what is according to our physical nature. And that, of course, makes more sense with the context of Romans 1. I'll give you some examples. In Galatians 4.8, it says, But then indeed... When you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods, which by phusis are not not gods. They served idols. So is Paul saying, by custom, they're not gods, but really they are? Or is Paul saying, by nature, that block of wood is not a god? He's saying it by nature, not by custom. In Romans 2.27, he says, and will not the physically or the phusis uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you? who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law. When he says physically uncircumcised, he could only possibly mean physically uncircumcised. There's no other way to take that word. In Romans 11.21, Fusus comes up again. He says, and notice these passages are in Romans. This is the same book that we're reading. So he's using the same word in the same book in the same context. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. He's talking about um, Israel who rejected Jesus. And they're the natural branches. He's saying that natural, this is, he's talking about an analogy about grafting plants. So the natural, physically natural. This is not about custom. Every time it's that way. Um, every single time. In 2 Peter 1.3, partakers of the divine nature. We're not partakers of divine customs. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And we have the, God's very nature is in, in us now. So there's no passage in Paul's writing where it clearly means custom. It means nature, specifically the physical makeup and design, and that's what makes most sense in the passage. It's just that that disagrees with the idea of a gay lifestyle. And that's, that seems to be the only motive for coming up with sort of this elaborate and, and contradictory trans, uh, uh, interpretation of the passage. Also, it just, that just ignores the, con- the context of the passage. It just ignores the context of the passage completely. <clears throat> but uh, for the sake of time, I want to move forward to another another thing. And as we do that, I want to mention that this is almost what every cult does. And I'm not saying he's a cult leader. That's certainly not what I'm saying. But every cult I experience, as I approach them with, say, a passage that teaches that, that their beliefs are wrong, like, say, Jehovah's Witnesses that teaches that God, Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It's interesting that almost every cult I encounter uses the passage that proves them wrong to prove themselves right. I am shocked at how often I see this happen, but that's exactly what's happening here. There's such a twisting in the handling of the Bible that I'm going to use the passage that proves me wrong to prove me right. And I I can only call that darkness as far as the the mind being darkened to even understand the scriptures. It's so plain, Um, but nevertheless. Now, Romans 1 then clearly teaches that homosexual acts, behaviors are wrong and that same-sex desires without any qualification are a temptation and not a good thing. That's what Romans 1 clearly teaches. Every argument that, that has been labeled has either contradicted himself or just been factually, historically wrong. But then there's two other passages, and these two should be a little bit easier to get through. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, and 1 Timothy 1.10. These are the other two passages that directly talk about homosexuality that Matthew Vines um, addresses. <clears throat> And there's even books on this. The six places in the Bible where it talks about homosexuality is the term. There's actually more than that, but that's what we're going to deal with for the sake of uh, discussion. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous, in the New King James Version here, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew Vines, his main point and the main point of most pro-gay theologians are going to say this. 
We don't know what those words mean. That's why for 1900 years, they were treated like nobody knew what they meant. This is, this is a quote from him. He goes, because the dispute here is about translation, he says, I'll start with the King James version of this passage, which was published more than 400 years ago. And so predates this modern controversy. It reads, know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, and here's the two words, effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, dot, 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 shall inherit the kingdom of God. He says, our key words for the discussion here are the words translated as effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind in the King James Version. These somewhat ambiguous translations in the King James are consistent with how these words were actually translated into English for hundreds of years. Some kind of immorality or abuse, but specifically what kind was never stated. So this is going to be um, the, the, the main sitting point is these two words, and we'll get into them in a minute what they are. But basically, he's just saying, we don't know what they mean. So let's just say we don't know what they mean. That's, that's what he's saying. So you can't say this is a text about homosexuality because you don't know what we don't know what that word means. I'll quote him again. He says, it would be more faithful to the text to return to the ambiguity, or ambiguity, ambiguity, that's a fun word, though not real, that prevailed for more than 1900 years of translation. The notion that Paul is singling out gay people here and saying that they will not inherit the kingdom of God is simply, simply doesn't hold up under scrutiny. Of course, that's an uncharitable representation, Paul. He's not singling out anybody. It's a group. You can't single people out in a group. Description. But anyways, beside the point, the two words are this, arsenikoitas, um, arsenikoitai, I have a typo there, and then malakoi. These are the two words in the Greek. And the first one we'll get into, it's actually a word translated here, abusers of themselves with mankind in the King James Version, or translated sodomites in other versions you might have. This word, arsenikoitai, its first use in all ancient literature is in this passage, Paul seems to have coined or made this word. I do this sometimes unintentionally. Um, I just take, you know, you know, we know word endings and word beginnings and you just smash two words together. And you're like, that's probably a word, but it, but it means what I want it to mean, so I'm going to say it. I do this sometimes. Paul coined several words in the New Testament and, and, and took some words like agape and gave it sort of a, a, a new definition that wasn't part of their culture because Paul was establishing n- new, new norms for Christianity that weren't part of Roman culture. So he had new concepts. This word, actually, they say it, we don't know what it means, but we actually probably know where it came from. Because in the text, in 1 Corinthians, he seems to be referencing back to the Old Testament law of these prohibitions against the same things God said not to do in Old Testament law. Adultery, fornication, and all these sorts of things. This is where it gets a little bit complicated, and forgive me if you don't know Greek, and forgive me if you do. But here's the point. Paul seems to have coined this word directly referring to the Leviticus passages we dealt with last week. In Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, we have these words used together. Arsenos, which means male, and koiten, which means bed. Or to bed, it's a verb, meaning to to take someone to bed. It's a euphemism for sleeping with someone, which is a euphemism for other things that I think you get. And this term, arsenos, meaning male, so a male bedding a male, When in Leviticus it says that a male shall not lie down with a male as he does with a woman, that's a male shall not, an arsenos, shall not koiten, with an arsenos. That's what it is in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, which is what Paul used and the New Testament writers quote all the time. That's what they quote. That's their, that was their Old Testament. It was Greek, translated into Greek. So therefore, arsenokoitos means men who bed other men. That's what it means. Which is why you get a phrase like abusers of themselves with mankind. It seems to be sort of a a euphemistic, a gentle term here being translated from the King James. Now, the word malakoi, um, so we're not really ignorant of what it means. The word malakoi is the other word there, and it's translated effeminate in the King James. And in um, uh, the New King James, it's translated homosexuals. And you might be like, why does it say homosexuals and then sodomites? Like, isn't that kind of saying the same thing twice? Well, the word malakoi is a little bit more difficult to understand because of its, of its term. The word itself means soft. It means soft. And I don't think here Paul's saying, hey, if you're soft, 
you're going to hell. Like, I don't think that's what he's saying here, right? Soft is obviously a term meaning something else. In the context, and context is king, it's sandwiched between adulterers and arsenokoitai, which is these, these people who, men sleeping with men, Kate taken from Leviticus. This, this effeminate context is referring, it seems, to the passive person in the male-male relationship. Sometimes Malakoi would refer to, say, even a male prostitute because they would, they would be hired to be the passive guy in that relationship. And so what Paul seems to be doing is having a sweeping condemnation in 1 Corinthians 6 against both the passive and active male partners. This is actually pretty, pretty strong. Now, he also says that in 1900 years, this is kind of what his argument's based on, that for 1900 years, we always translated this as, well, we don't know what it means. It's something bad, though. Don't do whatever it is. That's not actually true. In the Vulgate, the Latin from 450 AD of this passage, it's translated as men who lie with other men, men lying together with other males. Speaking of the bedroom relationships, not just like, like cuddling for warmth in the middle of a snowstorm. In the Syriac, 463 AD is translated as those who lie with men, this, this um, arsenokoitai. In the Darby Bible from 1890, before the modern controversy, it says, nor those who make women of themselves, speaking of the word malakoi, nor those who abuse themselves with men. And so the only thing is the King James and some others took the term abuse rather than being more literal about the word. It's to, to go to bed with. It has the word bed in the word. Uh, men who bed men. Young's literal translation, 1852, uses the word sodomites. And the word sodomite meant back then the same as the word homosexual means now. The word homosexual didn't exist uh, back then, so they use another word that means the same thing. The New King James Version, I'm going to read you several versions. New King James says, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. The ESV says, nor men who practice homosexuality. Taking the two words and just turning it into everybody who practices it. And the NASB translated as, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. The NIV from 1984, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders. The NRSV translates it, male prostitutes and sodomites. The New Living Translation says, or are male prostitutes, or practice homosexuality. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, or anyone practicing homosexuality. The New English Translation says, passive homosexual partners, Malakoi. And practicing homosexuals are Senecoitai. The New Century Version says those who are male prostitutes or men who have sex with other men. The ISV translates it as male prostitutes or homosexuals. When you have all the translations agreeing, you don't have a confusing word. It's not a conspiracy. Started in 490 A.D., you know, brought up to today. It's not a conspiracy and it's not, and it wasn't considered unclear. The King James version, I think was taken to mean at the time, Hey, that's euphemism. You know, we don't want to be inappropriate. That's just, it's talking about that, you know, effeminate and abusers of themselves with mankind. That was speaking of that type of thing. There's a lady named Eve, Eva, excuse me, Cantarella. She's an Italian classicist. She's a professor of Roman law and ancient Greek law at the University of Milan. And she wrote a book called Bisexuality in the Ancient World. She desires to um, gather together a massive amount of information about, about all types of uh, not, not uh, typical sexuality in the ancient world. Here's what she says. Paul then condemns each and every form of homosexuality. But despite the clarity of his language, the text is sometimes interpreted in a much more restricted sense than a simple reading reveals. She goes on to say this, so that Malakoi, to whom Paul alludes, are not boys. They are passive homosexuals whom Paul defines by using a term which, in Greek, alludes only to adults, but which he obviously uses to indicate all those who take on an effeminate, a female role, without distinction of age. And along with those, he also condemns the arsenokoitai, a term which literally means a man who shares his bed with another man, but which Paul is clearly associating with malakoi to include active homosexuals also in his condemnation. So he covers the whole spectrum, all homosexual behavior. And there is nothing in the text to limit his condemnation to adults who took advantage of boys. 
If Paul's aim had been to protect pieties, that would be children, from exploitation and abuse, among other things, he would presumably have leveled his condemnation only at the abusers and not at their victims as well, since we have both the active and passive partner being rejected here. In short, as can clearly be seen from a reading of the two passages devoted to this topic, this 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy, Paul condemned homosexuality on a global basis, whatever its manifestations. This is not an inconsiderable innovation. It immediately shows the Christian's attempt to introduce a different sexual ethic, which replaced the old contrast between activity and passivity with a new fundamental dichotomy between heterosexuality and homosexuality. Paul's being counterculture here. He's saying, unlike you Romans, I'm saying all homosexual behavior is wrong. The novelty of this principle is underlined, if it needs underlining, by a consideration which is by no means of negligible or secondary importance. In his letter to the Romans, as we saw, Paul condemns not only male, but also female homosexuality. For him, clearly the problem is not the typical one experienced by Romans, law, and ethics um, in the era before Justinian of how to proclaim the principle that a man must be manly. His concern is to impose respect for a rule which is for the first time defined as natural which demands that men should always and only couple with a woman and vice versa. Um, notice that she wrote this before, in the 90s, before the modern controversy even began. This really wasn't happening in, in any significant way. This is not a reactionary thing where she's like, I'm trying to write something smart for Christians. This is just a classicist and an authority in ancient Greek. And there she is. The, the last passage that we can go to is in 1 Timothy 1.10. And this one will be real easy because I've already taught you everything you need to know to understand it. 1 Timothy 1.10, it says that the law is good for, and he lists several things, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, the word translated sodomites is the word arsenikoitai, which we understand now why translations constantly affirm this perspective. It's not a cultural thing. It's a language thing. It's a linguistics thing. Uh, now, people will then respond, but wait a minute. The word homosexual was never used until after the 1800s. And you know why? It never existed. The word never existed. And people make a big deal about this. And I would say, well, that's why it was translated into other words that meant the same thing before the 1900s. Dutch scholar and, and, gay, and he's actually a gay activist, uh, Pim Pronk, Wherever homosexual intercourse is mentioned in scripture, it is condemned. Rejection is a foregone conclusion. The assessment of it nowhere constitutes a problem. I could continue to give you guys quotes, but the main point is this. There is simply no justification of any kind. And this is agreed from straight and gay and non-Christian scholars alike. It's just, this isn't even controversial, except to people who don't know the stuff because they're just talking over your head. So there's, so in other words, I say all that to say, you can just read the passage and take the English and that's exactly what it means. What do you know? In 1 Corinthians 7, after doing all these six passages, um, you, you then would, you would say, okay, well, what's your positive case for gay marriage? What's your positive case for homosexual relations? Because all you're doing now is saying none of the Bible applies, which is you've kind of left. You just left a vacuum. You haven't actually said it's good or OK or proven anything. So here is the, the remedy that Matthew Vines comes up with. He says that in First Corinthians seven, it is better to marry than to burn with lust. And therefore, if somebody has same sex lustful desires, it's better to get married. The response to this is where in scripture does it say that marriage can hallow or fix any relationship? If I'm married to my bride here and I begin burning with lust for someone else, is it better to just marry her too rather than to continue burning with lust? Is marriage the solution for lust? No, it's not. It's not. But if you can get married and if there's somebody you can marry, then go ahead and you have the desire to, then go ahead. It's just a permission being given. Get married. Don't. Yeah, it's better for the kingdom if you stay single, but don't feel bad about getting married. Marriage, marriage is also beautiful and good and wonderful. And I made that decision as well. And this is a good thing to do. 
It's just it's a question between good and better. It's not really a question between good and bad here. But this this simply doesn't apply. This is also what we call ad hoc or just made up. Because from Genesis to Revelation, marriage is made up of one man and one woman, and no other unity is accepted in the Bible. And no polygamy is not endorsed. And no uh, all other forms are not endorsed. Some people did that in Scripture, and God condemns it. In order to suggest that homosexuality could be redeemed in marriage, we have to simply assume that it can be. There's no scripture to support that concept. So to summarize, we cannot rationally think that there are any exceptions to the prohibition against homosexual activity in the Bible because, one, while the authors of the Bible could have selectively condemned certain gay behaviors, they didn't. They generally condemned all gay behavior. Two, the idea of homosexual orientation is not new and was known in the Roman world, so we can't say, but they didn't know what we know. Three, the idea of long-term committed same-sex relationships is not new and was known in the Roman world, so we can't say, well, Paul didn't know this. If he had known about long-term committed relationships, he would have accepted that. You're just reading it wrong. It's not true. So... Paul knew what it was and condemned it entirely, just as the Old Testament did consistently, just, um, just as I think Jesus did. And that brings me to my next point. How many of you have heard the phrase, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality? You hear that phrase? Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. And here's the response. To think that whatever Jesus didn't talk about means that it's okay, means that beating children is okay, means that putting car bombs on your your neighbors for having barking dogs is okay. It means that all manner of strange and weird and sinful behavior is okay because Jesus did not specifically address it. Jesus didn't say anything about using cocaine or pot. The potheads love that one. Slavery, incest, or spousal abuse. We can't just assume everything that Jesus didn't talk about he approved of. That's silly. And the Judaism of Jesus' day universally condemned all homosexual practices, and his apostles also condemned them. So he had no need to speak about the issue because it wasn't like he was clearing up a controversy. He just remained silent probably because it was like, I don't need to clear this up. It's already in the right place. He often dealt with areas that he wanted to change. And so what he was silent on, he probably just was fine with. Number two, we don't know what Jesus didn't say. It's not as though every word of Jesus is recorded in the Bible. I don't know if he said something about this. It's just not recorded in scripture. Much of what Jesus said wasn't recorded. Number three, why you shouldn't, you shouldn't use Jesus not talking about homosexuality as an excuse to behave it. Jesus believed the Old Testament to be true. And if he was asked about the issue, would have simply repeated the words of Leviticus or Genesis the way he did when he was asked about marriage. You've heard that it was said in the beginning, God created the male and female, therefore. And he draws his conclusions about the rightness and wrongness of what men and women should do based on Genesis 1, or Genesis uh, 2 and 3. And we also see that he believed the scriptures. He came to fulfill them, not to destroy them. And so he's not going to go against the moral proclamations of the Old Testament. Number four, Jesus is God. Think about this. If you're a Christian... Right? If you're not a Christian, why do you care? But if you're a believer, Jesus is God, and he gets credit for the writings of the Old Testament as well as the New, as well as what the apostles wrote under the leading of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we even have scripture saying that it was the Spirit of Christ that was in them as they were writing. That's 1 Peter 1.11. It's not just the red letters that come from Jesus. That's the point. And so the Bible universally condemns it, so God does, Jesus does. And number five, Jesus actually did say something about marriage, and I'd like to read it to you. It's in Matthew 19. He said, and he answered and said to them, he was asked, um, is it okay for a man just to get divorced (coughs) casually from his wife? He says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. 
He's saying the nature of marriage is found in Genesis, and tough questions about marriage can be answered by referring to God's design in Genesis. God's design is one male and one female joined for life. This is the thing that Jesus says what God has joined together, man and woman. In fact, the terms are specifically gender, gendered, right? Man and wife. There's no such thing as a male wife. There's no such thing as a female man. These are, these are all gender specific. This rules out polygamy because two become one. This rules out homosexual relationships by definition because of the complementary opposites that they are, man and wife. And therefore, homosexuality can't be sanctified by marriage because the design of marriage is, is bigendered, is male-female. That's the design, just based on the words of Jesus. God invented and defined marriage, and Jesus endorsed this as the basis for solving marriage issues that they were dealing with back then and that we can deal with today. So keep in mind that marriage is only good, the only good and accepted place for human passions to be expressed, and therefore homosexual desires, just based on what Jesus said, are, are again condemned. Um, I should say homo, homosexual practices. And the desires, in a sense, are condemned, but people aren't condemned just for having them. That's the difference between temptation and sin. If we're going to be condemned because of our temptations, then I should step down. And you probably shouldn't be coming here anymore as well. <laughs> It's a big empty church. <laughs> They'll just be infants. We'll just drop the infants off. <laughs> we'll come back later and pick them up after they listen to some worship music because they're not, they're not old enough to, to, to have these horrible thoughts, right? Yeah. Other things we should consider are just this little bullet points here before we finish tonight. Um, the Bible repeatedly deals with homosexuality in actually it's more than six passages. I think we've dealt with at least nine different passages of the Bible that deal with this issue and specifically weigh in on it. But also any time the scripture forbids fornication or sexual immorality, homosexuality was understood by definition to fit into those terms. So as many times as fornication and sexual immorality are condemned, adultery is also condemned. Homosexual behavior is also condemned. That's how the audience would have understood it. That's what the words mean. It's like anything outside of the one man, one woman marriage. What I would like to do is I want to give you guys a chance to ask some questions. And then I want to let you know also um, a little preview of what we'll be getting into next week. In fact, I'll, tell, I'll give you the preview first and then I'll offer an opportunity for questions. The preview is this. I would like to next week, among other things, I want to get into some advice for my Christian brothers and sisters who may struggle with same-sex attraction, as well as advice for someone who may have long-term been committing homosexual in a committed homosexual relationship, I'd like to give you what I think is good biblical advice. Um, it doesn't make you less of a Christian if you're tempted in this way. That's huge. That's huge. We're all dirty, rotten sinners. And we have somehow bought this lie that we're all beautiful on the inside. And that is so antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not a Christian perspective at all, nor is it accurate. <laughs> you might be, if you're beautiful on the inside, then tell us how to do that, please. How do you do that? That's amazing. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, we will one day be rid of these temptations. That'll be wonderful. I'm looking forward to that. But not at the moment. Not till, not till uh, we blink and, uh, and this life is over and we're in eternity. But... We'll deal with that next week. We'll also be dealing with um, secular arguments against homosexuality. We'll be dealing with uh, um, slogans we hear from the pro-gay views. But I think what we've done so far is we've established Old, New Testament, hearing the best arguments I can find against the traditional view, and then showing that these are really bad arguments. They're not even based on truth. Even the claims made by the arguers, are, I, 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 I hate to say, either there is ignorance on the part of the claimer, or it's a lie. All right, well, I'm going to close in prayer, and I'll stick around if you guys want to talk or discuss or anything. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, um, it burdens our hearts to realize that on this issue of homosexuality, our world is gone bonkers. But Lord, we're aware that this is not the first issue that they've gone bonkers on. Las Vegas promotes itself, promotes itself as sin city with its own carnal and carnival mentality that what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. There's, there's so much wickedness and sin in the world. And Lord Jesus, I think this issue is just reminding us of all of it. 
And so we pray this, help us to sanctify our lives before you, Lord, to truly follow Christ, not to go the ways of the world, because maybe we've swallowed some things that we shouldn't have. We pray, Father, we would just be believers who are faithful to your word and who, who really, really seek to just walk in the spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We ask, Lord, that you let us be lights on this particular issue. And we pray for our family and friends who are dealing with this issue, Lord, who have maybe believed the lie. We ask, Lord, that you let us be a light to them. Just speak the truth in love. We pray that they could come out of that lifestyle and all, any life, Lord, that is not in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and thank you for thinking biblically with me today. Now, we've all heard the slogan, born that way, and I think this is a particular slogan that has caused a ton of confusion on the issue of homosexuality. Next time, we will tackle the born that way slogan and examine it from both theology and science. Until then, don't forget to check the context.